Good morning. My name is Joe. I'm an alcoholic. By the grace of God and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and good sponsorship, I've been sober since August 17, 1982. For that, I'll be forever grateful. I remember when I used to think that um, gratitude was just an emotion or something that we thought about. I, I kind of used to feel the same way about love. And I started to find out in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that gratitude is an, is an action and a feeling and something that we get to think about. It's kind of funny when I've kind of just kept it to myself to think about or feel, it starts to choke me because I'm not giving it away. And I think like Tom was saying last night, it's just not something you can hold on to. You just, it's just got to flow through you, you know. When I was new, I also had this idea that the uh, newcomer in the room is the most important person. Because I was a newcomer and I always have been and hope I always won't be the most important person in the room. But when you meet these people that have been here this weekend that have gotten to share with us, Dick and Peggy, and Martha and Tom, you realize that the heart of the program, that that blood, that that life blood that the new people bring to us needs to flow through something. I'm glad my first meeting wasn't just a room full of new people. We would have been sitting there really confused. <laughs> you know, what do you do now? <laughs> if, if sharing in a common problem was all I needed, the Michigan State Penitentiary would have worked. <laughs> I've been in a lot of places where I shared a common problem with people around me. But I think for me, the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous happened in my first meeting because I heard a man that was not only like me, but he wasn't anymore. And that magical thing happened because, you see, they paraded a lot of people by me in my 17 years of drinking, or even before I drank, that I would somehow say, you know, this person might have something for me. But you know what? I don't know if he's ever been where I've been. I don't know if he's ever felt what I've felt. And then sometimes they'd parade somebody by me that I would say, you know, I kind of relate to this guy. We probably had the same problem, but he didn't have a solution. And I think when that magical day happens and they and somebody's put in front of you, that you can say to yourself, this man has been where I've been and has felt what I've felt. He doesn't seem to be that way anymore. And, you know, maybe something's happened for him and maybe it can happen for me. For that day, I'll be forever grateful. Because I heard a man in my last treatment center that soon was to become my sponsor and still is that that happened with. And it's happened with a lot of you when I meet you and that we get to share. It's been great coming here. Uh, I want to apologize for not having a tie this morning. I usually do that out of respect for Alcoholics Anonymous and myself and you people. And it was a little hectic where I was packing on Friday morning uh, in Los Angeles. It kind of felt like I was leaving a war zone early in the morning before the before everybody got up. And, uh, I was a little shaken, you know. It wasn't where I live. I live on the beach in Santa Monica. 
But to watch on TV for a day and a half before I left to come here, the city you live in being destroyed. And that kind of rage in people's hearts that's going on all over the country. The amazing thing was that I was at peace when all around me were going crazy. That's one of the things I've been interested in in the last couple of years that I'd like to talk about a little bit this morning. So to get out early Friday morning and get here and realize I didn't have a tie when everyone else was wearing one, you know, I thought we were going to be, they told me in a tent by the Mississippi River. And I had visions of sleeping bags and tents. And of course, I came with everything you could possibly bring. To meet these guys, um, I, I think they figured I was probably sicker than most because they gave me pretty much, they gave me two hosts. If one if one's good, two's better, right? These two, Joe and Rick, are just a piece of work. These two. I'm not sure Joe did quite enough this weekend to make this thing go right. <laughs> Rick's been along around long enough. He's a he's a thinker now. Joe. Joe's a doer. <laughs> so, <laughs> they kind of make a good pair. Rick thinks about it and Joe does it. <clears throat> Joe does, does to keep from thinking and Rick thinks to keep from doing. <laughs> We did have a hell of a lunch yesterday, me and Rick and, and his wife, Ginger. It was great. They made the mistake of asking me what I thought about something. It's not a good thing to do with a guy with about 10 years. I have great respect for the people in Alcoholics Anonymous that have stayed. People like we've met here this weekend. To get to know Dick and Peggy a little better and to meet Tom who my sponsor knows and and he loves all three of them. It's, it's been a great time. A couple things about the tent. Um, one of my thoughts yesterday, and I, I, I still have a strange mind, one of my thoughts yesterday was, um, you know, I thought to myself, I'm in a room where the wind's blowing and the walls are moving. And all of a sudden I realized that wasn't too uh, unfamiliar to me from my past. <laughs> As many detoxes as I've been in, as many as many times as I've tried to sober up, there it was pretty familiar to me to be in a room where there was cold wind blowing and the walls were shaking. You know. My other thought, since this is Sunday morning, was to get up and do something like um, in in South Central Los Angeles. There's a there's an all black Alano club called the Crenshaw Alano Club that I love to go to at noon. Uh, and um, there's a couple guys there that have a little Southern Baptist streak in them and they'll, they'll get up and they'll, they'll start with something like, um, I had a thought this morning. <laughs> and they'll slowly start on this roll and they'll get going by the time they're done, the whole room's testifying. <laughs> I had, I had visions of that this morning. It's been great to be here. I think something that's been real interesting to me the last couple of years is Something my sponsor's been saying to me for a long time, and it took about six or seven years for it 
for me to get it. And I'm, I'm talking about the difference between getting it and getting it. The difference between knowledge and, and experience. Sometimes been a long, a long road between here and here with things that I've heard in Alcoholics Anonymous. This difference between the, the kind of experience that we have and we can share with each other and the kind of knowledge that I came here with. It's kind of like one of the best analogies I've heard about that is kind of like the difference between, and this is kind of how I see the spiritual experience in Alcoholics Anonymous for me. It's kind of like the difference between what you thought it was like to have an orgasm the day before you had one and what you knew it was like to have one the day after you had one. He's been saying to me for about ten years that no one in these rooms is any closer to God than anybody else in these rooms. And nobody in these rooms is any closer to God than the last time they took a drink. The thing that really changes here is our awareness of that presence that's been there all the time. And when I started to get that, my perception changed. And my awareness of that presence began to change. And I started to see you different. And I started to see me different. And I started to experience that conscious contact a little different when I started to get that. I'm real interested in this idea of what really changes here. I've been attracted to the people that have been around Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time, for quite a while. Because I think I reached a point in AA, excuse me, <coughs> where I needed to decide what do I want in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started to become attracted to those of you that have been around. I heard it described the other day. I'm sponsoring a young man for the first time who's been diagnosed HIV positive. And he came to me and he said, seven years ago I was diagnosed with the HIV virus and I decided to live. And I found out there were some people that had been living with a terminal disease for a long time and I did everything I could to seek them out. And he said, seven years ago I decided to live with this virus and it has not progressed. But I have alcoholism, which is my primary disease, and it has progressed seven years since my last drink. And he hasn't had a drink for seven years. And when he said that he found out he had a terminal disease and his interest became to meet people that were living with it for a long time, I thought that's kind of similar to what I've done. I think sometimes I forget. Rick and I were talking at lunch about the one, the only two places that I know that the big book asks us to remember. One we hear all the time when they read how it works, and the other one's a little further on, but it says somewhere around the eighth step, they remind us that we decided at the beginning that we would go to any length for victory over alcohol. And the other one that we hear all the time says, remember, we're dealing with alcohol. Cunning, baffling, and powerful. And I think it's real interesting that both of those things where they ask us to remember are about alcohol. I had this idea a couple years ago I saw in the middle of an inventory further away from my last drink than I've ever been. 
I saw this belief I had that the distance from my last drink has something to do with the distance from my next drink. And then I looked back on the truth of my life and I realized for this guy, the further away I get from my last drink, the closer I am to my next drink. And that that's the way it was for 17 years. And who am I to think that's not any different now? A friend of mine said to me one time, if you ever think it's very far away, just look out of the corner of your eye real quick and it'll be right there. I had this idea that there was a lot of things now between me and my next drink. Human things. Family. Friends. Financial security. A good feeling most of the time. Success. Lots of things. And all of a sudden I realized that those things have been eliminated in a split second in my past. And that really about the only thing that can fit in that space is the power of God. And that all these things I think stand between me and my next drink just might not be that powerful. Or enough on any given day. I used to have this great attachment to the drama of my drunkalogue. And I could tell good stories. I didn't have to embellish on mine. I started going to treatment when I was 19 years old with a question in the back of my mind that had been there since before I ever took a drink. What's wrong with me? And I went to treatment 10 or 12 times. I ended up in the Michigan State Penitentiary when I was 19 and a half years old. On and on and on and family and how I was raised and what my dad was and how old he was when I was born. And You know, some of you are aware of the fact of what it's like to drink with a head full of Alcoholics Anonymous and how that messes up your drinking. Well, some men sat down with me and they did something for me that I couldn't do for myself because they messed up my drunkalogue. And they helped me see that all this drama of where my drinking took me has nothing to do with why I tell you I'm an alcoholic. And I saw on that night when they sat with me, what I was doing here in Alcoholics Anonymous was using the things that separate me from you to tell you why I was one of you. Because what these men did was they sat down with me and they asked me a question that I don't hear asked that much anymore. And I'm as guilty as anybody else of not asking that much anymore unless you ask me for help. And these men sat down with me and they said, Joe, why do you think you're an alcoholic? I said, well, I've been to treatment ten times. They said, wrong. A lot of, treat a lot of people go to treatment more than once that are about as much alcoholic as the man in the moon. They're just stupid. They're just stupid hard drinkers that can drink a lot of booze and maybe even get in trouble. But all they need is a good reason to make up their mind and then never have to drink again. I said, well, alcohol put me in the Michigan State Penitentiary when I was 19 and a half years old. They said, hold on just a second. What did you go to the Michigan State Penitentiary for when you were 19 and a half years old? I said, writing bad checks. They said, then writing bad checks put you in the Michigan State Penitentiary when you were 19 and a half years old. And a lot of people go to the Michigan State Penitentiary who drink tremendous amounts of booze that are about as much alcoholic as the man in the moon. He said, you know, some of us have never been to treatment and some of us have never been to jail. 
And some of us barely ever left the house. And we're just as much alcoholic, if not maybe more than you are. And they started to share their experience, strength, and hope with me that we could look at a common problem. Because what I was doing, once again, my ego was using the things that separate me from you to tell you why I'm one of you. And they started to talk to me about two things, about drinking, that changed my whole experience and my perception changed. They started to talk to me about taking a bottle of alcohol and setting it right out here between you and I and skimming all the drama off the top and looking at two basic questions. What happens when you pop the top on that bottle and take a couple? And what happens every time you put the top back in that bottle? And I started to see that where my drinking took me is not the reason why I'm an alcoholic. It's only where my drinking took me. And I can sit in my living room today with a 70-year-old little black lady from South Central Los Angeles who never went to treatment, who never got in trouble, who never went to jail. And she and I can sit and talk about what these men talk to me about. And all of a sudden, we will both realize in, the, in a moment that we have a common problem. And it has to do with craving booze when I drink it and being unable to keep myself stopped once I stop. And all of a sudden, the nifty stuff about my... Now, I can talk about drinking. I can talk about what it's like to wake up in the morning having to have to drink. Having to have a drink. Past the point of where it's just a decision. Past the point where it's just something that I can choose whether I'm going to do it again or not. I can tell you what it's like to be... 19 years old at your father's funeral. He just died in the same hospital you were locked up in in the, in the, in the asylum. Brought out from a little white room. Taken to my mother's house for his funeral. And her saying to me, please don't drink today. And me saying to her with all the love and everything I could muster, I won't. And meaning it. And asking could I go across the street just to say hello to a friend. And him asking me, did I want a beer? And I said, I'll just have two to calm down before my daddy's funeral. And showing up at my father's funeral where the man that brought me from that room tied me to a tree by my ankle with a chain at my father's funeral. And I didn't want to do that. And I can talk to you about getting out of that prison two years later and making it to my first report to my PO. Feeling good. One of the biggest traps for an alcoholic. See, I have the kind of ego that thinks I know how it will be and how I'll be feeling the day I'm going to drink again and that I can keep that from happening until you've been around here for a while and you've seen some people drink and die that were feeling good. But I remember going to that second report 28 days later, feeling good, doing good. He gave me a big list of everything I was doing good. He said, my God, son, you haven't worked for years and you got a little job. You're doing good. Your family's behind you again. God forbid. You ever remember those times that your family would rise up on your defense one more time and you almost wanted to say to them, please don't believe in me. I'm just going to break your heart again. He said, your girlfriend's taking you back. You got a little income. You got a little car. He said, all I want you to do is not drink. Don't go any bars. 
Don't hang out with any ex-felons. Don't take any drugs. And don't leave the county. Or we will send you back behind the walls of the Michigan State Penitentiary. And this time you will serve two 14-year sentences for forgery. I said, okay. Walked out of his office. Had a strange thought that I need feeling good. That I needed a pack of cigarettes. Into a bar, picked up a drink, called an ex-felon and drove out of the company. What's wrong with me? <laughs> Woke up five days later in downtown Detroit, 125 miles away, with an ex-felon. I didn't want to do that. I didn't decide to do that. I didn't choose to do that. And I'm going to stand here today and tell you that I have a choice whether I drink again or not. I mean, even if the power of God has come into my life, which is the basis that I live my life on, deciding that that's true, that's what the second step is all about. Even if I believe that, do I really think that the God that I chose is going to give me a choice over something that I know will kill me? He loves me more than that. My God, one of the greatest promises in our big book that you hardly ever hear talked about I mean, I've actually been at meetings where they think there's only 12 promises in Alcoholics Anonymous on page 83, halfway through the ninth step. My God, there's promises at the third step. There's promises in four, five, six. Some of the great promises in our big book are at the tenth step. But nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to talk about making direct amends to everyone. Finishing amends. To the best of your ability. And really doing some stuff with 10 and 11. And experiencing the promise in the 10th step that the problem will be removed. And if the problem is removed, there is no choice. In the sunlight of the Spirit, there is no choice. There's two stories in our book. One at the end of More About Alcoholism and one at the end of We Agnostic. Where these two different people make a statement that was really confusing to me when I first read them, because I'd never been in that place. And they both say in different words, I couldn't drink even if I would. I couldn't drink even if I wanted to. God had restored me to this sanity. It's like this, It's like the two ends of the same scale. I reached a point in my drinking where there was no choice but to drink. And I believe there is a spiritual place, and I better never forget that it's a daily reprieve, that there is a spiritual place in the sunlight of the Spirit where there is no choice to drink. And I have experienced that. And the fight is over. And my perception changes. I was in Denver a few months ago and I was at a meeting. This guy was whining and crying about the traffic in Denver. And I'd been there a week and I'd just been zooming, zooming around Denver. <laughs> I said to the guy, you ought to go to Los Angeles for a couple of weeks and your perception about the traffic in Denver just might change. But we'd both been driving in the same city and we both saw it different. It's kind of frustrating sometimes. I've been... Peggy and I were talking about it at dinner uh, Friday night. I've been listening to a man in some work I've been doing in the 11th Step named Joseph Campbell. 
And he says, and, and, and I understood him when he said this. He said, you know, those of us on this path really only get to talk about the third most important stuff. And I thought, what? Because, see, I'd like to think that we talk about the most important stuff. He says, you know, those of us on this path really only get to talk about the third most important stuff. And he caught my attention. I listened. He said, you know, the first most important stuff you can't describe. How can you describe to somebody else the feeling of watching and looking at a flower or the sun or the moon or the consciousness of the presence? How do you describe that to somebody? He says, you can't. He said, the second most important stuff is only our descriptions of the first most important stuff. And you always lose somebody when you're talking about it. He said, so we get to talk about the third most important stuff. And my perception changed. I've been real interested in this idea the last couple of years that it's possible. Because I have the kind of ego that says the outside circumstance and my emotional state need to change for me to be at peace. Well, here I am in a city that's on fire. Chaos on the streets. Do I have to wait for everything to come to peace for me to be at peace? Sometimes circumstances in my life are a little crazy. Is it possible there's a place where I can go where there's peace? In the middle of confusion. Or, what about when I'm not feeling real good? I became the guy at about seven years who believed, and I was saying things like indirectly and directly from the podium, like, I know God's working in my life today because I feel good. A friend of mine comes up to me, and in our group, they're, they're allowed to ask questions. And they they have crosstalk in some of our meetings. And I was saying something like that in one of our meetings. And he raised his hand. And whenever they start a question with, is it possible? You might as well just duck and run for cover because you're in, in big trouble. And he said, is it possible you're not worshiping God, but your emotions? Like you've done all your life. And is it possible God can be there for you when you're not feeling real good? And my perception changed. And my ego tricks me again. And then I become the guy that says things like, I know God's working in my life today because there was a parking place just for me outside of the meeting. I mean, I've actually heard people, and I've heard it come from myself too, so self-centered they think that God does things like, I needed to slow down today and God made it rain just for me. And my friend comes up to me and he says, is it possible you're not worshiping God but circumstance? And that was in the middle of circumstances of my life going really well. He said, is it possible God can be there for you when things aren't going real great? And my perception changed. Once again. And I saw from what I used to do with my drunkologue, or when I would sit with one of you, or one of you would have the love in your heart to ask me, what do you think's wrong with you? I started to see the nature of my ego is to place it on something out here, doing it to me, Making me feel the way I feel. And it's either, if not circumstance, it's at least my emotional state. And I started to lose the attachment to what's wrong with me. Having anything to do with circumstance or emotional state. Because you see, they broke it down for me. Well, I drank because things were going bad. Well, didn't you drink when things were going good? Well, I drank when she left. Well, didn't you drink that way when she stayed? Well, I drank when the team won. Well, didn't you drink when the team lost? Well, I drank when I was feeling bad. 
<clears throat> I heard George Carlin a couple months ago on HBO, and he talked about the kind of society that we live in. And he said, you know, we live in a society that believes we should shield each other from death. So I don't say anything to make you uncomfortable, so you don't say anything to make me uncomfortable. And we take words that used to make each other com uncomfortable, and we change them. Like, he gave some examples, like from World War I. They used to use a term called shell shock. That's pretty graphic. And now he says, after several wars, we've changed it to post-traumatic syndrome. And he said, and the longer you make it, the better it sounds, and it doesn't make people uncomfortable that much anymore. And it came to me, and I thought, my God, we do that in Alcoholics Anonymous. Rather than say that so-and-so drank, which is the most natural thing for an alcoholic to do, I'm always amazed by people who are shocked when they, oh, Joe, Joe Blow drank. Oh, oh. I mean, they ought to be shocked by these guys that show up week after week after week sober. My God, Rick, Rick is still sober. I mean, that's what we should be amazed by. We take rather than say that so and so drank because we wouldn't want to scare any of the new people with alcohol, right? It's almost come to the point in some of the places where I go, where I live, people don't want to talk about the the two most important things in Alcoholics Anonymous. They don't want to talk about booze and they don't want to talk about God. I've actually been speaking at meetings in some places where you almost feel a little apprehensive about mentioning drinking or believing in God, and that's a sad reflection. On my own fear to not stand for something. He also said we live in a society where they believe if you change the name of the condition, you can change the condition. And he gave some examples. And I thought to myself, you know, we do that too in Alcoholics Anonymous. Rather than admit to you, which my ego doesn't want to admit, that I have a threefold disease of body, mind, and spirit that no human power can relieve. Maybe now in the 90s it's just low self-esteem coupled with obsessive compulsive behavior. I mean, doesn't that at least sound like something? If I can't make it go away, we can all make it go away together, right? I'll tell you something. If it's not obvious by now, I got a little bit more than low self-esteem. I have probably had more esteem for myself than anyone in the world would ever even care to have for me and drank. And I have probably had less esteem for myself than anyone in the world would ever even think about having for me and didn't. What about obsessive compulsive behavior? I like mints. I like wintergreen lifesavers. I always have wintergreen lifesavers. My friends know if you want a wintergreen lifesaver, ask Joe. I'm probably a little obsessive or compulsive with my wintergreen lifesaver usage. But you know what? You'd really have to stretch my mind to convince me that's the same as alcoholism. I smoke cigarettes. I am addicted to nicotine. Some of you understand that. Some of you drink tremendous amounts of coffee. Now, if alcoholism is the same as addiction, then those of us in the room that smoke cigarettes and drink coffee aren't sober. Thank God some men sat down with me because, see, I used a lot of drugs. 
And I drank alcohol for 17 years. I walked away from heroin after seven years. I said, I don't want to do that anymore. It gets me in trouble. Never had another shot. I lived in South Florida for six years in the middle of that world and shot cocaine on a regular basis. And one day, I didn't want to do it anymore. I never did it again. I couldn't stop drinking. They'd love to lump us all together nowadays. Guy came over to my house one time. He said, um, I love free-based cocaine. I'm an alcoholic. So how long have you been in the program? He said, six and a half years. And we started going through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous the same way it was done with me. And all of a sudden, it was obvious to both of us in a, in a heartbeat. This person doesn't crave alcohol when he drinks it. And I said, why do you think you're an alcoholic? He said, because they told me I am. Never given the grace and the dignity to find out his own truth. I've worked with guys that are both. I've worked with guys that thought they were alcoholic and found out they were an addict. Now, why is that important? Why was that important for me? I believe, and the people that I know believe, that the 12 steps work for a lot of different things. But every one of these programs that uses our 12 steps has a different word in the first step. And I believe to start a spiritual process, you must start it on truth. And I have seen some people start a spiritual process based on a lie, get sicker. They get to the ninth step and they are worse. Because they've started a spiritual process based on a lie. And I had this confusion myself when I was new. What am I? There's that question. What's wrong with me? Sitting in my mother's backyard before I ever took a drink, ten years old, dreaming that a spaceship was going to land and a little green man was going to get out and say, you weren't born here. We brought you here as a teeny baby. This is just a test. <laughs> and bringing that with me for 20 more years into Alcoholics Anonymous. What's wrong with me? Why do I do this? <clears throat> Am I an addict? Am I an alcoholic? I mean, all these treatment centers told me I was an addict because I showed up having done a lot of drugs most of the time till the end. Am I an alcoholic addict? Am I an addict alcoholic? Am I both? What am I? And a man had the love in his heart and the experience to back it up to sit down with me and help me find out what's wrong with me. And isn't it amazing that our program begins with an answer to that question that had been in the back of my mind for 30 years as long as I could remember. <clears throat> I remember leaving treatment September 1982 scared to death. I'd been there for 30 days and they gave everybody a graduation. They gave him a little diploma, they gave him a little coin, they gave him a pat on the back, they told him everything was going to be all right. I show up for my graduation. The doctor says, we're going to do something a little different today because you have about as much chance as a snowball in hell unless you find a program of recovery to show you how to live life without drugs and alcohol because you don't do real well with them and you don't do real well without them. Good luck. I thought, I thought damn. <laughs> <clears throat> I am grateful to that man because I came to Alcoholics Anonymous with the absolute certainty in my gut based on my experience every time I had ever left treatment 
that I was going to drink again. And it was only a matter of time. Because you see, for the first time in my life, once I started to get clear on these things that happen to me when I'm drinking, once I start to drink, and every time that I stop drinking, these symptoms of alcoholism, for the first time, having been to ten treatment centers, having become a therapist in one, drinking, while I was drinking, <laughs> that's what you do when you get out of the Michigan State Penitentiary. Having been a, a patient in several, you become a therapist in one, right? Alkies <laughs> understand that. I mean, you're either... you're. <laughs> You're either a patient in one or you're, 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 you work in one. Drinking with the director of the program that I worked for on a daily basis. And I had all this knowledge. I met my sponsor and the first thing he said to me was, you know enough to be dangerous to yourself and everyone around you. I thought, that doesn't necessarily feel real good. And thank God for the people in Alcoholics Anonymous that are willing to risk your sensitive alcoholic feelings and tell you the truth based on their experience. I don't remember the little blue-haired ladies that came up and patted me on the back and said, just keep coming back, honey, everything's just fine. I remember the guys that pissed me off. I remember going to Don one time saying, I feel terribly inferior and insecure. He said, you want to know why? And my eyes lit up and I said, I've been looking for the answer to that for 30 years. Why do I feel inferior and insecure? <clears throat> I have a master's degree in psychology. I've been a therapist in a treatment center. I've been to 10 of these places. You told me I have more knowledge than any human being should have about himself, alcoholism, and what he thinks is wrong with him. Why do I feel inferior and insecure? He said, because you're inferior and insecure. <laughs> I thought the simplicity of that, that's so simple. It's not Freudian, and there's no one to blame. We hear a lot, what's the new, the new, there's always a new, I'm sure those of you that have been around a lot longer than me know that every year or so there's always new catchwords, right? New buzzwords in our program that somehow filter in from somewhere. And I think the new one is... Um, a guy came up to me once, and he obviously didn't know who he was talking to, but he came up to me and he said, you know, he tried to use the big book on me. He said, you know, they, those people that wrote the book realized they only knew a little. And more will constantly be revealed to us. And, you know, that book was, it's kind of out, I mean, I just wanted to smack him. The book is kind of outdated anyway. And we, I wanted to ask him, they always refer to, we have realized now in the 90s, that it's no longer a disease of the body, mind, and spirit. It's a feeling disease based in shame. I said, let me ask you a question. Is it possible? See, he didn't know, but I did. I said, is it possible that you used to drink when you felt really bad and you were full of shame? He said, yeah, see? And I had him. I said, but is it possible that you ever drank again when you didn't want to, feeling really good, on the top of the mountain with no shame at all. He says, yeah. I said, did you ever drink when you weren't feeling much at all? He said, yeah. I said, did you ever drink not to feel? He said, yeah. I said, did you ever drink to feel? He said, yeah. I said, then what the hell does alcohol care about how you feel, whether you drink it again or not? And I had him. <laughs> oh. 
It's so much fun to say the things back to people that your sponsor said to you that made you really angry. And I started to get a clue that I have something a little more wrong with me than what I thought. And it's amazing when a guy like me who worships the God of reason in, in observing the second step each time I've done that, I'm confronted with this idea that my own knowledge is now my worst liability rather than an asset. Now, there are times like when you sit with me or when I get to do this or when I sit in my living room with another drunk or what I know and my experience of it is a great asset, probably my greatest asset, that my past could be turned into a jewel. The only thing worth giving to anybody is amazing. But what about if you're seven, eight, nine, five, three? What if you're at a certain point in sobriety and you, and you decide you'd like to go for more or a new experience or to grow? Then all of a sudden what I know becomes a trap that I need, it's literally a wall that I need to bust through to have anything new. And now what I know, just like when I was new, is no longer an asset. It is the thing that will hold me back. So when I was new, he gave me a prayer. Yes, I was taught how to pray. I didn't know how to pray. <coughs> he said, the first time I met him, why don't you ask God to put aside what you think you know to have an open mind and a new experience? And you know, in my first inventory, I didn't find myself drawing on the knowledge I had from therapy. And you know, I wasn't writing to face how I feel and cope with it and work on it and deal with it or make it go away. I was writing inventory to face the things that blocked me from God and my whole perception about this inventory. Because see, when I got to inventory, I wasn't thrilled. Now we're going to go in there and look at that stuff. You've been doing that for 12 years. and th There's two ways to approach inventory. He said, imagine telling a little kid, go down to your room and clean it. And he knows all he can do is move stuff around and rearrange it. But what if you told that same little kid, go down in your room and throw everything away you don't want anymore for all new stuff. That same kid would go into that room overjoyed. And that's the attitude I go into inventory with. I'm not writing inventory to get in touch with how I feel. My God, I was probably more in touch with it. That's, I mean, why, why did I keep drinking? I was probably too in touch with how I felt and knew enough about myself to be dangerous. He said, you're not writing inventory to find out about how you feel or patterns in your life so you can work on them. He said, you're writing inventory to face and be rid of the things that block you from God and realize that you can't work on them. That's what six and seven is all about. And my perception changed. Two years ago, I was engaged to be married to, um, uh, to God's will. And um, it was. It was a direct revelation from God. And uh, again, and um, and she left me. And for a couple of days, I, I went around to meetings just milking the heck out of it, right? Telling you what I thought was the truth about why I was hurting. I mean, if you would have asked me that week, why are you angry? Why are you hurting? Why are you upset? I would have said because she left me. That's the truth, isn't it? That's the truth. That is the truth. That's what I think is the truth. And a friend of mine comes up to me and says, is it possible? No. He says, he says, why don't you go home and write inventory 
about her leaving you. The amazing process in our big book that can take what an alcoholic thinks is the truth. You know the stuff you're willing to hold on to and literally die to defend? The truth. So I'm, I'm told to go home. And I'm told to put down in the first two columns of a piece of paper why, who and why I'm angry. And I go home and I put she. We have a different way of saying it in our group, but I won't say it here this morning. I put she left me. That's the truth. They asked me to put down who and the cause of why I'm angry. She left me. That's why I'm angry. That's the truth. That is the truth. Then I'm somehow given the grace to see where seven different areas of self were either hurt, threatened, or interfered with when she left me. Because you know, as sensitive as I am, that when she left me, it hurt my self-esteem. And my pride, and my ambition, and my security, and my definitely my sex relations, right? And then I'm somehow given the grace to see why, in real specific ways, and the belief system that I have about when she left me and it hurt my self-esteem. And I'd like to say to you that I found that when she left me, it hurt my self-esteem because I'm not worthy and I don't deserve her and I'm a rotten, terrible piece of you-know-what. But that isn't what I saw. Because if that was the truth, I wouldn't get angry. I would just sit there like a lump. Well, bye, honey. But see, I get angry. And I'm examining here why I'm angry. And I saw that when she left me, it hurt my self-esteem because my ego tells me I'm too good to be left. No one should leave me no matter what I do. And that's why I get angry. My ambition? I want her to stay no matter what I do. I have an ego that when I'm angry says she should stay, Joe, no matter what you do. Then the biggest one of all when you're dealing with the ego, which is your security, that's the stuff your head tells you in the middle of the night that you literally need to exist. It's funny that it's never God. It's always, if you lose that job, you'll be dead tomorrow. Right? Or, if you don't have that money, you'll die. And I see that what comes out of the end of the pen is, I, the biggest lie of all, I need her to stay to be okay. And those are the lies. My ego always tells me I need anything but what I need. And my ego always wants me anywhere but right here now in the moment. It wants me a couple hours back, a few days ago, back in the riots in L.A. It wants me up into next week. What am I going to be doing? It wants me anywhere but right here and now where God is. That's the only place my ego doesn't want me. Then I'm somehow given the grace to see where my selfishness, dishonesty, self-seeking, and my fears, and how I do each of those, drove her away. And the truth became a lie. Sick him. And the lie, the lie that I had anything to do with it became the truth. And my perception changed. I also remember with that amends, sitting in my home group a couple of weeks later, holding on to four amends that I didn't want to finish. I remember making this statement in my home group, I'm praying for the willingness to make amends. And one of the kids that I sponsored raises his hand and he says, Is it possible? And I went, Uh-oh. 
He says, is it possible you're not praying for the willingness to make amends? I said, what do you mean? He said, is it possible you will absolutely know the moment you're willing to make those amends? I said, well, I never told you that. I mean, how dare you know anything that I haven't told you, right? I said, then how will I know the moment I'm willing to make that amends? He said, the moment you're willing to make that amends, you're going to hear some really strange noises. I said, are you absolutely crazy? What do you mean? The moment I'm willing to make that amends, I'll hear some really strange noises. He says, yeah. The moment you're willing to make that amends, you're going to hear some really strange noises. I said, like what? He said, like this. And you know what? The moment I was willing to make that amends, I heard a really strange noise, and it was me knocking on her door, and some really strange words coming out of my mouth like, I need to talk to you about the harm I caused you. For a guy like me, that's really strange. And I got to get free. And you know what? When I wrote that inventory about her leaving me, you know what I thought? I thought she either needed to change, come back, or see the light. (laughs) Isn't it amazing? Her seeing the light always has to do with what I want, right? I thought she had to change, come back, or see the light for me to get free. You know, she didn't have to do any of those three things for me to get free. I had to take some strange action, contrary to my will, against the way I live my life, that doesn't seem to have any relevance to over here, and watch this over here change. But what really changed was my perception of it. She didn't leave me. I drove her away. And that happened in here. And out here... My God, if the world had to get well and everybody had to get sober for me to get free, if everybody in this first column of my inventory had to change or get sober for me to get free, then the greatest statement of hope in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous isn't true. And here's a statement not too many people want to talk about. Our troubles are of our own making. Now, there's two ways to look at that. You can look at that and go, gee, what a rotten, terrible person I am. Or you can say... Thank God my troubles are of my own making because that so-and-so doesn't have to do a thing for me to get free. I'll tell you, I'll tell you how I think. I'll tell you exactly how I think. I'm like the guy who's been sober forever. God forbid he's on his deathbed. And he looks up at his wife and he says, Honey, after all these years I've realized something. She says, What's that? He says, Well, you were there that time I got shot and you stood by me. And you were there that time all I, I lost all our money in business and you stood by me. And you were there that time that I had a stroke and you stood by me. And you've always been right there and you've always stood by me. And after all these years, I've realized one thing. And she says, what's that? And he says, you are a frigging jinx. (laughs) (laughs) And I heard that and I thought to myself, that's exactly how I think. (laughs) It's always them or her or it. Remember them, you know? They're doing it to me again, right? And there's my ego once again telling me the problem is out there 
And it has to do with circumstance, people, and how I feel. Because they are always making me feel. Is it possible that there is a spiritual malady within me that if it can be healed, I can get free regardless of circumstance or emotional state? And that it doesn't have to change for me to experience freedom. And I think one can only begin to want to explore that when they decide for the first time in their life in Alcoholics Anonymous they want more than relief. They want to begin to seek freedom. Now there's a lot you can do in Alcoholics Anonymous for relief. And believe it or not, when I was new, I'm sure you'll believe this, relief was a big deal. I needed some relief. I was dying. And five and a half months later, further away from my last drink than I'd ever been, I started to experience not the symptoms of my disease. I haven't had a drink since the first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I started to experience the root of my disease. For the first time in my life, these men and my sponsor started to talk to me about a malady that no human power can relieve. It's a malady of the spirit. Now, I hear that term and I want to think it's real heavy or that it's some esoteric thing or that isn't something that I can relate to until they broke it down from the doctor's opinion all the way through this book when they describe it. Simple terms that I can understand like being restless, irritable, discontented. My God, you're sitting here today. I don't care how long you're sober. You want to see if you have this malady further away from your last drink than you've ever been? Read the middle of page 52 in the chapter of the agnostic and see if that describes you. And if that describes you as it has described me at several points in my sobriety, then that's what I got. My ego wants to trick me and tell me that page describes the human condition until I meet people like you that show me, no, it isn't, honey. It's untreated alcoholism because I don't live that way anymore most of the time because it describes having trouble with personal relationships not being able to control your emotions, being prey to misery and depression, having a feeling of uselessness, being full of fear, and being unhappy. And once again, my ego wants to go, the unmanageability of my life is out here, and it's because of her, or them, or it, that's making me feel this. And once again, my ego has won, because it's put the problem outside of me. And they said to me, is it possible that that's an internal condition? that can be healed without any of that out there having to change. And on a regular basis, because I drank enough alcohol and I was beat into a state of reasonableness by what the big book calls the great persuader, more power than a mother, more power than a wife, more power than a sponsor, a therapist, counselor, Anybody I ever went to, there was something in my life that beat me into a state no human power ever did. And it wasn't God. It was booze. I'm not into the great debate whether God got me here or not. I believe the grace of God has kept me alive my entire life. But I wasn't a well, healthy, adjusted person walking down the street one day. And I thought, gee, I think I'll go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. There was another factor in my life, and I believe the only two factors in my life that brought me to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's booze. I have heard in some places in Southern California, people that never even drank. 
I heard a guy not too long ago, he said, I never really drank. I don't even like alcohol. But my sponsor told me I have alcoholic tendencies. I thought, you poor guy, you're going to have a problem with this program for the rest of your life. I mean, one needs to be beaten into a state where lack of power is really their dilemma to be open to anything past maybe the first half of the first step or the second half. But we see it all the time. I know lots of men that stay sober on the first half of step one and the, and the last half of step twelve. Two-steppers. They're great to find out about twelve-stepping people from, but they're of no use anything in between. I heard a guy not too long ago in Los Angeles say, I don't know if I should talk to newcomers anymore because I can't remember what it was like. And I thought to my, I got a real sick feeling in my stomach, not for him, for me. And I thought if I ever become that useless, you might as well just take me out and put a bullet in my head. And I'm glad that on a regular basis, I have been able, by the grace of God and good sponsorship and you people and these meetings, I'm glad I've been able to remember what it was like and my need for power. Rick and I were talking the other day and I said, the next time you meet a guy that says he's having trouble with step two, and if there's anybody new in this room or old or in between that thinks they're having trouble with God or spirituality, I said, talk to him about step one. You meet somebody that's having trouble with inventory, talk to them about one, two, and three. It's always in the step somewhere before where I think I'm having trouble in the one I'm on. I've never met anybody having trouble with step two that wasn't having trouble with step one. Because when I started to see the nature of my condition, there's a girl in our group that always says, grace really only lasts as long as ignorance. And once a piece of truth is seen, you need a little bit more than grace. You need some power. Once I started to see, and every time since, when I am reminded at a gut level of what's really wrong with me, that I suffer from a disease where I cannot control booze once I start, and I can't keep myself sober on my own power, and I cannot manage my life, and I have something that no human power can relieve, I'm a little bit more open to a power greater than myself, and I will quick hurry up and choose a conception that at least works for me at the time, and then to make that wonderful choice. I mean, a guy like me giving the grace to choose God as everything or as nothing. God either is or he isn't. And then to be given the grace to move on and make a decision that I can't on my own power follow through on about this power and I at the third step. I remember taking the third step the first time and getting off of my knees and asking the greatest question I ever learned to ask in Alcoholics Anonymous. I asked my sponsor if that was just a decision. How do I turn it over? You know this great mystery nowadays that people throw around like us new people are supposed to understand what they mean? You have some terrible problem and you raise your hand and you share this terrible problem and some old guy in the back of the room goes, Ah, just turn it over. And you want to take him and you want to start to strangle him real slow and you want to say, If I knew how to do that, I wouldn't be here. I remember before I ever started these steps, sitting in a meeting in North Denver, Colorado, where there was men willing to risk your sensitive alcoholic feelings, and I was doing the old AA shuffle. I don't know if any, anyone else has ever done it, but the AA shuffle for me goes like this. I turned it over, 
And then I took it back. And then I turned it over and then I took it back. And this old guy says to me, why don't you shut up and sit down? And I, and I had drank enough alcohol to shut up and sit down. He said, if you're still doing that, you haven't turned it over. There's a difference between the decision at the third step and the commitment that follows. And I learned to ask the second greatest question I ever learned to ask in Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, what do you mean? Those of you that are new, if you want to find out something real interesting in AA, when you start hearing some of these people that say things you don't understand, go up to them afterwards and ask them, what did you mean when you said, you'll find out something real interesting in AA? I'm not going to tell you what you'll find out, but you'll find out something real interesting. I said, what do you mean there's a difference between a decision and a commitment? He said, yeah, it's like telling someone to go sit in the corner and pray for ham and eggs and then just sit there. They will starve to death. He said, but if you told someone to go sit in the corner and pray for ham and eggs and they decided to do that and they did that and they got up and you showed them how to put one foot in front of the other and they made one hell of a commitment, they'd probably eat ham and eggs. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's like a chicken and a pig walking down the road. They come to this big sign on a church that says, help feed the poor. And the chicken's all pumped up with virtue because he likes to do nice things for people. And he says to the pig, gee, we ought to do something about that terrible hunger problem. And the pig ain't so pumped up with virtue as the chicken is. And he says, what could we do about that terrible hunger problem? And the chicken says, we could feed those poor people ham and eggs. The pig had a little more sense than I did when I took the third step because he said to the chicken, for you that's just a simple decision to lay some eggs, but for me that's one hell of a commitment. (laughs) And I didn't understand. I didn't understand. But a couple months later, when I reached a point in Alcoholics Anonymous, and Peggy or Dick said this last night, but at dinner, I would rather drink again than ever be in the, than to ever have to be in the state that I was in at five and a half months sober, further away from my last drink than I'd ever been in 17 years. And the outsides were great, but inside, I was dying of a part of the disease I didn't even know I had. I was dying of untreated alcoholism. And the only reason I can say that I would rather drink than ever be like this again is only because of one reason. I know I don't ever have to be like that again. But when I reached that day, I used to think it was the worst day of my sobriety. I will now tell you it was the best day of my life because I hit the, I hit bottom with the second half of step one. You know, a lot of us hit bottom and, and just grab onto this program from the day we walk in. And I was beat up by booze and I knew about when, when they told me about this craving and this obsession, it made sense and it tied up days I could never explain and I got it. But this idea, see I thought the first step had something to do like this because they put that little dash and I thought that meant fill in the blank with my great knowledge and I thought it went like this. I admit that I'm powerless over alcohol and that's why my life has become unmanageable. And I thought the first half of step one had something to do with the second half of step one until I was around here for a while trying to manage my life on my own power. And all of a sudden I saw the second half of step one has nothing to do with the first half unless you're still drinking. And then my life is unmanageable, sober. And I, and I got that wonderful day where you can't imagine life with or without alcohol and you stand at a turning point. And I called this man and went out to his house and he said he only knew one way to do this. And we started on the title page of Alcoholics Anonymous 
And we went through it together. And I've never been as alone or afraid or as miserable since. And every day hasn't been great, but I've never been that way since. Because I know there's a solution. And when we got through the stuff we had to get through in the first three steps, and we did that prayer together, and I got up off my knees, and I learned to ask the first greatest question I ever learned to ask in AA, I said, Don, I understand that was just a decision. How do I turn it over? And thank God he didn't lay some cliche on me that day or I would have strangled him. He said, son, can you count from four to nine? And I said, yeah. And he said, that's how we turn it over. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Acts against the will, contrary to the way we've lived our lives. And I'm here to tell you, for me, to do inventory the way it is in our book was directly against my will because I don't want to see my part with anybody I was ever mad at. I do not want to see that self-reliance fails where fear is concerned. And I do not want to look at what I do in relationships. I only want to look at what they do to me. And I took some action against my will, contrary to the way I lived for 30 years. By the grace of God. To read that whole deal to one man, holding back nothing. To ask something other than me to remove that stuff. I love in Southern California when I hear somebody working six and seven. Oh, I've been on six and seven for five months now and I've listed my defects and my sponsor's telling me what order to work on them in. They're not working six and seven. They're doing everything they can to keep from doing eight and nine. You want to know when you've done six and seven? When you're making a list of people you've harmed and you're becoming willing to make amends to them all. That was against my will and contrary to the way I lived my life. And then to go to those people face to face and talk to them about what I did to them. I heard a guy one time, he said, you know, and he had some ferocious crimes. He said, I was told except one to do so would injure them or others, and I'm others, and if it's going to hurt me, I don't need to make them, and I thought I was going to faint. First thing they told me about amends is, you're not others. You must not shrink at anything. To go to a mother that I get to go see today up in Michigan. And sit down and talk about it, and then experience the reality of things being healed. Of the kind of harm I caused her, like talking to her through a plate glass window on a phone in the Michigan State Penitentiary. That look in her eye. To being invited home ten years in a row for Christmas. To watching unbelievable things happen. Don't ever let anybody tell you you can't make amends at somebody's grave who's dead. Because I went to my father's grave and I got free of resentments and feelings that I lived with for 30 years. I used to have a great, used to cause me great pain that he was 57 when I was born. And by the time I was 10 years old, he was 67. You want to talk a change of perception? That now gives me great hope. No one ever gets that. I would like to be doing what my dad was doing when I'm 57 years old. And my perception changed. And I have admiration and respect and love for that man who died when I was 21. Then to move into the 10th and 11th step and really begin to find out about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. To really find out what it means to give to others. To really find out what it means to use your will properly. Proper use of the will. I met an American, and I love my sponsor to death. I met an American Indian man 12 months ago who's worked with me for the last 12 months on just a couple things with 10 and 11. 
And I get to find out about spiritual truth, things that make no intellectual sense. The things that we understand that don't make sense to those people out there. Like give it, give it away to keep it. That's not where it was when I got here. That's not how it was out there where I live. You don't give away what you want to keep, but we understand that. To surrender to win, that's not the way it is in the Michigan State Penitentiary. You don't surrender to win. On and on and on. I really love the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have strong feelings about this program because I care. Because it literally gave me my life back. I heard two stories and I'll shut up. One story made me angry and I had to look at my part. This guy talked about taking a hundred of us from Alcoholics Anonymous. God forbid putting us back in a bar room. He said, you know what you'll find? He said, you'll find about 20 or 30 people at the bar crying in their whiskey, wallowing in their beer. And the sad thing about that is some of them enjoy it and some of them don't know there's anything more to find in alcohol. He said, then you'll find about 20 or 30 come in the bar, sit at the tables, drink till they feel good, then they go home. He said, then you'll find about 20 or 30 mad dogs going here, going there, won't settle for wallowing in their whiskey, crying in their beer because they know there's more to find in alcohol. Won't settle for just coming in, drink till they feel good, and then go home. That's just where the night begins. Mad dog alcoholics, they want it all. Going here, going there, getting in fights, go for the gusto, do it to the max, bop till you drop. They don't even understand words like kind of, sort of, maybe, or a little. He said, now take those hundred people, put them back in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you'll find they settle for about the same thing they did when they were drinking. And you know what? I will not settle for coming in these rooms and whining in my big book and crying in my stuff because I know one thing. There is a solution. I will not settle for coming in these rooms and just do enough to feel good and then go home because when I've done that, my own gratitude starts to choke me because I'm not giving it away. I was a mad dog then. I'm a mad dog now. I want it all. My big book says a man is unthinking who says that sobriety is enough. And I believe I can have it all right here in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. God is either everything or he's nothing. God either is or he isn't. What is my choice to be? Thank you very much.